We're going to be in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to continue. We just began this series last week, so we're going to be in John chapter 1. If you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, there's Bibles uh, in front of you, these pew Bibles, uh, so feel free to open them up. They'll, they have the exact same translation that we're going to use today. If you don't have a Bible in your home, we would love for you to take that Bible home. Uh, we want everyone to have the Word of God uh, available to them so they can read and test everything that we're talking about. We're not a, a church that is trying to, to, to push some sort of an opinion. We simply want to proclaim the Word and what is in this scriptures. Uh, we also have a resource wall over there by the Connect table. Those resources are free. We would love for you to, to take those resources. Uh, those are books that we have read, books that we uh, understand to be good and leading in the way of faith because we believe the greater you have a knowledge of Christ or, or the Christian faith, the greater you will fall in love with him. Uh, think of anything else you, you believe in, anything that you love, you understand and you, and you desire to know more about it. So that's why we have those resources over there. Please take them, uh, peruse them, uh, grab one, give to a friend. That's what they're there for, okay? One more announcement. Uh, you also have Connect cards in front of you. Uh, we've been doing a better job as a church of filling out those Connect cards. So please continue to do that. Even you regular attenders, fill out those Connect cards. Really the purpose of those is uh, to give the church, give me particularly a way to pray for you, to know how to serve you. Uh, it's a way that we can stay connected as a church as we continue to grow. So please fill those out, even if it's a one quick prayer request. We would love for you to do that. And then you can place those Connect cards in the collection baskets at the time of communion, or you can give it to somebody with a badge, or you can just hand it to me. Uh, that would be fine as well. So if you would now, stand with me in reverence for God's Word as we read John 1, verses 6 through 8. John 1, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be God. Have a seat and let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this chance that we can... Look into your word and understand your son, Jesus. We are so grateful for his incarnation. We are so grateful that he has come to us, that you have sent him to, to rescue us from this broken world, rescue us from our sin, Lord. Help us today to understand what this means for us. Help us to understand what Christ has come and his purpose and, and why he exists for us and why he came to this world. Lord, we are grateful uh, for the church, we are grateful that we have a place that we can come and openly worship. Lord, help us to learn and, and, and understand, again, your, your son better through your spirit. Lord, we love you and thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
So last week, again, this is the second week of uh, our series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. Last week, we preached through verses 1 through 5, and obviously this week, we're going to be covering verses 6 through 18. Well, these 18 verses, 1 through 18, are known as the prologue for John's gospel. And the reason why they're called the prologue is because they're actually a summary of what John is about to unfold for us as he writes to us. Last week, John began with before, he began telling us what was before the beginning, right? Do you remember that? He was talking about how the word was with us and it was with God and before the beginning. John wrote about how the power and authority that created all things was in fact personified as the word. It was personified as the word. Now, many of us already know who John is talking about, who this person is. We know that the word is referencing Jesus Christ. But imagine for a moment, imagine not having that knowledge. Imagine not understanding this narrative. Imagine reading John's gospel for the first time. And what you would inevitably be doing is you'd be asking yourself, well, who is this word? Who is this person then, therefore, that you're talking about, John? In fact, in the next set of verses, which we just read, John doesn't even mention Jesus' name until verse 17. So we have 16 verses of John really building this tension and this anticipation around this all-creative power that possesses all meaning of life. Again, John is building this tension and this anticipation, and he tells us that whatever this is, whoever this person is, cannot be overcome by darkness. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe does this in an incredibly uh, powerful way. Is this, uh, this fictional story narrates how uh, two men of Adam and two women of Eve come into this place called Narnia, and they constantly are hearing this story about this Aslan and how he is all-powerful, and he is this, this amazing being in their anticipation, almost this fearfulness of his great power that's about to stand before them. They build this tension, and then they eventually meet Aslan in literal representation of the incarnation of Christ. And then John does something interesting here in the text. So he builds all this anticipation, and he's, he's talking about the Word of God, and he's doing all these things, and then he does something interesting. He tells us about a man, not Christ as man, but he tells us about a man. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And what we learn is that this man is not the Word, rather he was the first herald of the Word's arrival. So this is a different man. John was... Uh, this John who gets brought up is not the writer of this book either. Our writer was the Apostle John. He is the son of Zebedee. He was the fisherman, which we read about in the other Gospels, of uh, who Jesus personally chose as his disciple. This John that the writer is talking about, who he is referencing, is called the Baptist. John the Baptist. And the reason why he's called the Baptist is because he unashamedly preached about the coming arrival of the Messiah. He fearlessly confronted sin in that day. He even openly called kings to repentance despite the danger that that put him in. He could have been uh, assassinated or martyred, however you want to look at it. He would, have, he would have been in such great danger calling these kings to repentance. He also openly baptized people to symbolically testify to their own repentance, in which he again was calling them to because of this coming Messiah. He was bold and unashamed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus makes this statement. This is incredible. Jesus makes this statement that John the Baptist was the greatest man who had ever lived. John the Baptist was the greatest man who had ever lived. Think of all of the prophets. Think of all the patriarchs that comes before John the Baptist. And Jesus says, this is the man who is the greatest of all time, who has ever lived so far. The reason why John the Baptist was the greatest man who has ever lived because he was the one who was given the honor to perform the greatest task in all of human history. He got to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He got to be the one who announces the coming Messiah. Right? Well, if you understand the scripture, if you studied it some, you, you remember that Jesus says that all the law and prophets are speaking of him. So all the things that happened back in the Old Testament is proclaiming for this moment. And John the Baptist gets the opportunity to be the one to actually announce the coming. Today is the day. It's incredible. That is why John the Baptist, that's why Jesus refers to him as the greatest man who had ever lived. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Not through John, but through Christ. This was John the Baptist's ministry, simply this. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all men, that all might believe through him, that all might believe through Christ. This was John the Baptist's ministry, but this, in fact, is also the call to ministry for every Christian. John the Baptist's call to announce Christ, to express the identity of who Jesus is and what the gospel means is also every Christian's ministry. It's what we're all called to do. And as we'll see in more detail over the next week, John the Baptist did develop this following as he was proclaiming the truth of Christ, right? We gathered together as a church, but John didn't see himself as anything other than a witness for the truth. He didn't see himself in any other way than simply a witness of what was to come, of the truth, of the word. He understood his role. He understood that he was plainly a follower and a believer of the Messiah. And just as we are, he was called to bear witness about the light, which again is Christ. And there's, a greater, there's, there's always been a greater purpose than our discipleship. There's always been a greater purpose in us becoming Christians, little Christ. We are meant to be disciples who make disciples. And that is what John was doing. That is what we are called to do. There's always been a greater purpose for us in our discipleship. We are to be disciples who make disciples because the purpose in what or why we share God's eternal truth is, which it says at the end of verse 7, is so that all might believe through him. The reason we do what we do, the reason why we planted this church, the reason why we work on discipleship, the reason why we go and we, we strain through evangelism is what the end of verse 7 says is so that all might believe through him. That's the call. Last week I kept saying this is about evangelism. This is an understanding. John wrote this entire book of the Bible as a way to proclaim who Christ is, what he has come to do in hopes that people would come to faith. So ask yourself, what do you do in your life that exemplifies John the Baptist? Do you mold and shape your life as a way to make all things about people coming to Christ? 
We all are called to be faithful in evangelism. We too, like John the Baptist, are commissioned to be witnesses. We are purposed to give testimony of Christ to the world so that men and women may believe. We are all purposed in that same way so that men and women may believe. This doesn't mean that the Lord's work depends on us. Rather, it means that we are to be faithful in the work that God has given us. We are not the active agents in faith. It is the Holy Spirit. But we are to be faithful in the work that God has given us. And it is clear what we are called to do. And prayerfully, some or all the people that we share the gospel with, some or all prayerfully will be given faith by God's grace and then will receive regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to faithfully go, faithfully evangelize, tell people about Christ and the gospel, and prayerfully people are given new life through the Holy Spirit. That is the desire. That is, the, that is how evangelism works. It is not based on us. It is simply based in God's ability. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Again, this was John the Baptist's ministry, but it's also ours. The next few verses, verses 9 through 13, speak directly to the various responses that people have when they're addressed with the truth. Verses 9 through 13 are simply talking about the various responses people have to the truth about Jesus Christ and to the reality of how he brings about light in darkness. The Apostle John first proclaims truth in verse 9, and then he gives us two possible responses in the remaining verses. Verse 9 reads this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This references the reality of Jesus' incarnation. And then verse 10, we, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His people did not receive Him. This is the first type of response that we're faced with when we're addressed with truth. Here John is showing, he's showing us the darkness and the blind condition of the natural man's heart. So this is the first response. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the second response possible when we see truth, or, or possible response to, to respond to truth. John wants us to understand, he wants us to hear the incredible and unimaginable blessings that are given by God to those who believe. He's laying it out for us. He says, this is the truth. Now, here is how people respond. Again, John wants us to hear the incredible and imaginable blessings. This incarnation that John is bringing about, what John is referencing in verse 9, is, is utterly incredible to me. When I process the incarnation, it is utterly incredible. It's both comforting and humbling when I imagine what Jesus Christ was like in his humanity. Think about that. Do you have a high enough view of God, and, and how do you process the reality that he actually came down and he dwelt among us? God, the creator of all the universe, the one who determines all things, the one who has all power of this universe in his hands, he came and he dwelt among us. It's incredible. It's comforting. It's, it's frightening, but it's also humbling. 
What does the incarnation tell us, though? What does the incarnation tell us? Well, we know that all, from all the Christmas stories and all the Christmas carols that we sing around the holidays that Jesus was born of a, of a virgin woman named Mary. Therefore, he submitted himself to grow physically just like us, right? He was in the bodies that we understand. He grew just like us. He grew as a boy into a man in both wisdom and stature. He got hungry And he grew thirsty, so he had to eat and drink. His body got tired, so he slept. He felt pain. He wept. He rejoiced. He was moved to anger as well as compassion. He suffered through temptation. He even experienced the burden of submitting his own human will to the will of God the Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to the Lord, if there's another way, let it be so, but your will be done, not mine. That's a burden that we all face when we're faced with sin. When we're faced with that temptation, your will, Lord, or mine. Jesus understands. He was tempted in every way as we are. And finally, this God-man who came into the world, this God-man who came into this world, he bled and he died for all the world. So that those who believe, anyone who so believes would receive new life in him. He came for that purpose. He came to rescue us from this broken world, to rescue us from the wrath of God hanging over our heads because of sin. Which is, and this is all proven to be true by the simple fact that even after he was buried, he was raised from life because death had no claim on him, because of his infinite righteousness. He was raised to life because death had no claim on him because the penalty for sin is death, but Jesus never sinned, but instead he took the wrath upon himself. He was the guiltless sacrificial lamb. And now, today, where is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? Do you know? What is he doing? He is patiently waiting after his ascension back into heaven. He's waiting for the time to arrive where he will come again with heaven in hand. That is the promise. That is the glorious news of the gospel. All the suffering that we're going through, all the burdens as we wrestle with our will versus God's will will one day be removed because Christ will come with heaven in hand. But what's your response to that? What's your response to all of that truth? Do you scoff at it? Do you rejoice in it? Do you question? Do you say, I I, I don't understand? How is that at all possible? Do you celebrate with us? I stand up almost every Sunday and I say, I'm so glad you're here to worship Christ with us. Do you understand what that means, to worship Christ in all things? Yes. Praise the Lord. The other Gospels here at this time, or, or sorry, verse 10 and 11, going back to that, they, they simply baffle me. Verses 10 and 11, this is the first response to truth, if you remember. 10 and 11 baffle me. You see, the book of John was written somewhere around 80 to 90 AD. That's, that's like 60 to 70 years or so after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And the other Gospels had already been written. They were already circling for a good amount of time by now. So the truth was out there. The truth was out there. The truth was experienced, it was told, and in fact, it was even received by many, yet John tells us that they did not receive him. His own people did not receive Christ. 
John here, in, in, if you want to put it in a timeline, John is most likely writing from the church in Ephesus. If you remember back when we studied 1 John, he was supposedly at Ephesus while he was writing. So he was fully aware that when he wrote this letter and he sent it out, that it would be read by both Jews and Gentiles. But Jesus came first to the Jews. Jesus was of Jewish heritage. Jesus was a Jew. He came to his own people, and yet they did not receive him. This is their response to truth. They didn't receive him, even though they had the testimony that the Messiah was coming. They had the testimony through the writings of the law from Moses, the different typology through the temple and the sacrifices. They even had direct words from the prophets who literally spoke for God, from God. They had all of this, but they didn't receive him because of their spiritually blind eyes. They couldn't see the light. Because they had spiritually blind eyes. They didn't see how all this, all of this, all of these testimonies pointed to the true light and how Jesus was the fulfillment or the completion of all that Old Testament religion. They just couldn't see it. So what is your response when we proclaim the truth? Are your eyes blind? If they are, I pray that you're able to see today. That's why they were content with copies when they could have had the direct image of the invisible God. They were content with copies. Are we content with copies? Are we content with enough of Christ? Content with enough of Christianity? Content with attending church? Are we content with Christian culture? Or do we need Christ? Because the image, the direct image of the invisible God is available to you. It's available for all of us. This is what John is trying to tell us. Again, this shows through their rejection, it shows the darkness and the heart's condition in regards to its own blindness. This is the natural state that we find ourselves in. The Son of God physically showed up, physically showed up on earth. Verse 11 he came to his own, and his people did not receive him. Again, this is the first response, is rejection of the light, even if you can't explain away how it's at all possible that you understand the darkness without it. If you reject Jesus, you still have an awareness of truth because the moral code that you live by comes from the fact that there is a moral lawgiver. That's simple logic. The only way you have a moral code is because there is a moral law written within you, but your own blindness, by your own blindness, you remain in the darkness. The second response is not rejection, but reception. The second response is not rejection, but reception. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but God. Here we have that moment of conversion. Here we have the true moment of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. John just said that Christ's people rejected him, which means they won't be receiving salvation either. But what an enormous change of direction. But, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Rejection 
or reception. Remember, this prologue is a bit of an introductory summary to the rest of the book. And in John 3, Jesus explains to a man named Nicodemus this doctrine of adoption, of how we are able to become children of God and which we receive salvation. Now, we're going to get to it eventually, but here's the quick version. All right, here's the quick version of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You and I, or not you and I, you and I, Jesus isn't saying that. You and I were born of the flesh from our parents. Therefore, we are children of this world. But you must be born again of the Spirit in order to become, or in order to be allowed into the kingdom family of God. That is the glorious thing, and this only is done by God, which verse 13 says. So back to 12, but to all who did receive him, that's the promise, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. There's no works that we're able to do, but of God. When John says that we receive him, that means that we take hold of him. We obtain and grasp onto Christ in all ways. In all ways. Saving faith is seen through the acceptance of everything in which the scriptures reveal about Jesus Christ. Do you read the text and process and say, I don't believe? Salvation is seen through the acceptance of all things that the word of God reveals about Jesus Christ. That is how salvation comes to us. That is how we gain the knowledge and understanding through the illumination of the Spirit. But it's written in the Scriptures. We cannot have again salvation until we, uh, until we are able to see and believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. Therefore, this conversion that happens to us, this conversion that happens to us is nothing less than a sovereign work of God on the dead and blind sinner. Nothing but the work of God. It says it right there, but of God. You cannot get around it. And the Apostle Paul explains it incredibly clear in Ephesians 2, as well as there are so many, so many other places in the, in the Gospel of John, which I'm excited to get to, but we need to move on. Verses 14 and 18 are basically telling us what John the Baptist has to say in regards to his preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Verses 14 through 18 are simply, this is what he's proclaiming to all people in shorthand. So in verse 14, uh, he, he starts again with the incarnation of Jesus. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the one, uh, sorry, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's idea here of the world dwelling among us is so beautiful and honestly eye-opening. The word dwelling among us is so beautiful and eye-opening. The term that John uses here, the term dwelt, is actually translated from a verb that literally means to tent with. To tent with. John is saying the word became flesh to tent among us. Again, this has to do with Jesus literally becoming like us in our human form, but it also reveals so much more than this. It reveals so much more than this. Remember how the Jewish people had all of those, those, uh, th those types and signs of the Messiah in the Old Testament that we talked about? All of these types and signs, well, John is connecting a few others. In the Old Testament, God literally tented with the people of Israel through the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a specifically constructed temporary tent where the presence of God would interact with Moses as he led them through the wilderness. 
can read about that in Exodus 40. It was a literal tent, a physical place specific for the presence of God to descend and ascend as it led Moses and his people through the, through the wilderness. And then later on in 1 Kings 8, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple that was constructed by Solomon for the purpose, again, of having God's presence among his people. So Jesus, who is God, and in his becoming man, he is the literal tabernacle of God among men. Are you with me? It's, in, it's just eye-opening. It's incredible to understand what the tabernacle proclaimed, the type that it lays out, the understanding of who Christ actually is, of Jesus literally coming down in temporary body to be with us like he did in the tabernacle. It blew me away. Maybe it didn't blow you away. I don't know. But that's how Jesus is able to say in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is the reality of who it is. Verse 15, let's go on. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist knew that he himself was just a man. People were transforming and changing and repenting all around him, but John knew that he himself was just a man, but he was also perfectly clear on Jesus Christ's eternal existence. Perfectly clear. He says it right there. He knew that Jesus is the one who created and rules and governs the whole of creation. He is the one who, who gives life and breath to all things. He is the one who controls the rain and controls the drought and is responsible for the harvest. He is the one who allowed kings to reign and for nations to be built up or fall. This is who the incarnation is. This is who the Son of God, the Son of Man, is. Verse 16, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law has given, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If God only dealt with us by his truth, he comes in grace and truth, but if God only dealt with us by his truth, no one would be able to survive his necessary and righteous judgment. We wouldn't be able to stand before him. But God comes to us knowing our complete unworthiness, our total unworthiness, and he deals with us in two ways. He deals with us with grace and with truth. Our guilt of sin is not denied. That would distort what the truth is and make God this lying tyrant. Rather, through his son becoming flesh and his work on the cross, he not only addresses the necessity of judgment for sin by pouring out his wrath upon Christ at the cross, but he absorbs those who do receive his son into his gracious mercy. He not only deals with sin himself, but he righteously handles the judgment. And he receives us into his mercy. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is glorious when you recognize all that encompasses in the incarnation. How it all comes together. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What we have in this last verse is who we now know is Jesus Christ to be. We understand that we are not able to understand God directly. If he were to manifest himself before us in all his majesty, we would be destroyed. We would be destroyed by his perfection and his righteousness as we are 
broken sinners, saved by grace. And yet Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with us, fully reveals God to us. Fully reveals God to us. Jesus literally makes the invisible visible in a way that nothing else can. That is why he is the complete revelation. That is why we need no more prophets and apostles and all that kind of stuff. Because Jesus is the full revelation. He is the completed word of God in human flesh for us to understand salvation and the way to it. So as we continue, I want to labor just this last bit of verse 18, just a bit more. It says that he has made him known. This phrase phrase comes from a word in which we get another word, and that word is exegesis. As disciples were called to exegete the word of Scripture correctly, that means that we are to work to explain and unpack the truth as we teach it. And in Jesus Christ, that is what's been done for us, okay? He explains all things of God through Christ. Through his presence on earth, he explains God to us, and he interprets him for us. If you want to understand God, look into the word of God and learn who Jesus Christ is. What John the Baptist is doing, what he is proclaiming and preaching with unashamed fervor is that we simply cannot understand God and possess salvation apart from knowing and trusting in the Son who is Jesus Christ. That is the simple message that John the Baptist, that the Apostle John wants us to understand as well. He is where our hope comes from. He is where everything relies on. And I'm going to finish simply by reading a passage from Scripture. And what it talks about is what is promised to those who by faith are willing to receive and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the end of the Bible. This is what Jesus has to say for us in Revelation. Then I saw, this is John, again, writing Revelation, but he he is writing about his experience with Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That means there's no more judgment. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He is the incarnation. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can rely on these words, you understand. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Hear this, without payment. Without payment? The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There is such great beauty in the incarnation. Christ has come to rescue us. Pray with me, please. Father, we love you. As we try to process the incarnation, Lord, it is too much for my heart to hold. It's a challenge for me to look at my own blindness, for us to walk in this broken place and to live faithfully. Thank you for men like John the Baptist, where we can see the example, Lord. I know he is just a man. 
I know that our eyes should be set upon Christ, but Lord, give us a hope and a desire to encourage one another to walk faithfully, united under the headship of your son, Jesus. But I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your spirit that is able to take the blindness from our eyes, the deafness from our ears, and transform our heart from stone to flesh. Thank you that your promises are true, that you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end, Lord. You are the one who has created all things, and our salvation only comes but from you. Lord, break our hearts for the things that break yours and lead us away from our sin and have us follow after you into the light faithfully. Thank you for your promises. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.